You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. For this morning, which is Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. As we are continuing along in our series through this book of Galatians and thinking a lot about the relationship between the law and the gospel. Now, I think right there, I just need to give a little context because if you're new to this series, it might be the first time that you've been to our church in these recent weeks, that you need just a little context. So what have we been thinking about and what is the deal with this law gospel thing? The basic summary is this. There are two ways that people tend to think about how they can have God's approval. One way is to do the things he says to do. If you just obey him, he will love you, he will forgive you, he will let you go to heaven with him when you die or when Jesus returns. That's one way. But the other way, which is the way that is consistent with the Bible's teaching, is that we cannot impress God, we cannot belong to God simply by keeping his law or obeying his rules. But rather, he saves us, he forgives us, he brings us into his kingdom on different terms, and those terms are simply this, to become friends with his son. That no one can go to heaven, no one will be forgiven, no one will know everlasting joy unless we become friends with his son, because that's what Jesus came to do, to befriend sinners like us. He came to live and die and rise again for us. So we're continuing through here, coming to chapter five, and thinking more and more and more about the relationship between those two voices, the law that says, do this and you can know God, or the voice of the gospel, which says, God has come to know you by grace. We want to understand how that plays out in the Christian life, and we want to grow our appreciation for the gospel. So this morning, we're going to answer one pretty big question with just a few pieces of an answer. And that question is this, what is the big deal with all this law gospel stuff? Why all the law gospel mumbo jumbo make a sermon series, talk about this all the time, draw this distinction? Isn't it just like semantics? What's really wrong with a little self-justification? Is it really that big of a deal that we all, and we do, that we all revert back to this legalistic way of relating to God where we think things like, you know, I've been a good Christian my whole life, and that's why these good things are happening to me. Is it really that bad to think something like that or to think the opposite? You know, I've been a good Christian my whole life. I've like obeyed the rules, and I went to church, and I read my Bible, and I tried to do everything right, and now bad things are happening to me. This doesn't make any sense. That's not the deal. Is it really that big of a deal to relate to God that way every now and then? That's an important question, because I think that as we think about the law and the gospel, that kind of objection or question can rise up in our hearts, because it can seem like 
we're just sort of splitting hairs about the way we talk about the Christian life. Or this is just like a theological thing that we're going to try to get straight in our minds. But in reality, it doesn't really make a big difference. Is that true? Or does it really make a difference? We want to answer that question today. It might be a little bit also like to bring it maybe down to earth like this, especially at this time of year. Most of us, by now, have a Christmas tree up in our house. We have wreaths on the wall in here and some garland at the back and some, and some different things to remind us of this season to help us celebrate this season. But you ever, have you ever thought about how much work that is for such a short period of time? We pour ourselves into that. Now, we're not talking about the crazy ones who have had their stuff up before Thanksgiving and will have it up way past New Year's. We're just the, the sane folks here that put it up after Thanksgiving and you'll take it down, you know, maybe New Year's Day. Why would we go to all that effort? What is the big deal to go to the attic, pull all the bins down, get the stuff out, put all the fall stuff in the fall bins, put up the tree, probably have to go cut down the tree or find it somewhere, put all the ornaments on it, all the decorations when it's only going to sit there for 22 days. Why? And our sanctuary looks beautiful since last week and all of this was, was brought out and put up. Why would we do that? We are only going to look at it for 12 hours and it's going back in the closet. Is it really that big of a deal? It really is. Because we all have a sense in which if we didn't do those things, we just wouldn't be relating to the holiday the way that it's meant to be related to. We, even if we don't like to do all of the decorating, even in our hearts, it would feel out of place. It would feel like it, wasn't, it just wasn't right if our hearts weren't filled with some kind of recognition of this important holiday. Well, it's very similar to the way we think about this law gospel thing. It does matter, and it matters far more than we think, and it's the reason why we should go to such great lengths to sort it out and to infuse it into our lives. And that's what we want to keep doing. And our next step this morning is to notice from this text in Galatians 5, 1 through 15, three, there are more than three, but three of the big reasons why this is a big deal. Here's the first. The first reason that understanding the relationship between God's law and the gospel in your daily Christian life is a big deal is because justification, that's a big word that just means being right with God, trying to be right with God by the law or by keeping his commands actually alienates us from Christ. This is a weird thing to think because I think naturally most of us would think that, that that's what actually makes us belong to God. But in reality, as we've been seeing, it is not. And in fact, what we find this morning in these first four verses of the text is the shocking, striking reality that if we try to relate to God in that way, it actually works to alienate us from him. It actually works to kind of put a distance or, a, or a, a conflict, a tension between us and him. So this is the first truth. 
Justification by law alienates us from Christ. So here's what Paul's big concern has been throughout Galatians and actually throughout a lot of his writing. He is concerned about the detrimental role of legalism in the Christian life. That's what we mean by justification by law. It it, it is a way to say that, that legalism is a way in which I'm going to hope in God or trust in God that he loves me because I do the things that he says to do. I meet the conditions of the covenant and he pays me back with the promise. And so this is what Paul is concerned about, and we're going to get to see some of the reasons why. The first one is this. That kind of relating to God does not give life to the Christian life. It actually kills the Christian life because it leads to a kind of slavery. Now, the history of God's people, as we know, throughout the Bible is a kind of slave history. Slavery in the Old Testament under oppressive earthly masters, slavery in a much more profound way under the oppressive power of sin in our lives, which enslaves our hearts and and actually is the reason why none of us could save ourselves. None of us could. No one in this room can wake up tomorrow morning and simply decide, today, I'll be a Christian. Today, I'll believe in Jesus. No one can do that because our hearts are captivated by sin and our hearts do what they want to do. And because of sin, we want to sin. We we don't want to believe in Christ until he comes and he changes our hearts. So the history of God's people, the experience, has been a lot of this feeling and experience of slavery, And that's why we see something so marvelous in the gospel, and that is that Jesus came to set us free. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom. And then he says, stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't go back to that freedomless way of living in which you were enslaved and controlled by these forces, maybe externally keeping you uh, focused not on Christ but on something else, or internally the slavery of sin that captivates our hearts. Don't return again to the yoke of slavery because Jesus came for the very purpose to set his elect brothers and sisters, that's what we are to Jesus, free from the enslaving powers of this world and of our own sin to give us real and lasting freedom. And of course, we know in our lives that doesn't mean that we will never feel some kind of mistreatment or somebody being condescending to us or, or even perhaps that there would be, as there has been for Christians in the past and even today, a real kind of slavery. But even then, that there is a freedom in the midst of that and he came to give it to us. So what does this have to do with the law? 
Paul's concern is that people like us, when we come to Christ, would not go back again to a way of relating to God that says, I need to obey him and then he will love me. If I do what he says, he'll pay me back with good things. If I really keep him happy, then and only then will he bless me. Because Paul says this is slavery. It's slavery under the law. It is a kind of oppressive power that the law can bring, even though that the law is good. Because of sin, we cannot meet its demands. And therefore, to try is to put us in this kind of oppressive, burdensome way of relating to God that doesn't work anyway. It's not how God has intended for us to know him. So here's a simple line. Some of these things are confusing. So I'll try every now and then to put them in ways that others have put it helpfully for me and can clarify it a little bit. Right here, here is one. Justification by law does not relate to God on his terms. That's not the way that he has saved us. It's not the way that he keeps us. He doesn't keep us by law-keeping. He doesn't save us by law-keeping, and that's good news because none of us have kept his law. There's no one in here. This might be the first time that you've heard this. Listen, I say this with a smile on my face because it's some of the best news that anyone ever told me. My friend, you are not a good person. You're not a good person. And if you think that God will love you because you're a good person, you have accepted a fatal flaw. You're not good. I'm not good. You've not kept his commands. Think about his commands. You know what they are. You haven't done them. So don't think that he'll accept you because you keep his law. But here's also the good news. That's not his way of keeping you. That's not his way of saving you anyway. That's never been his way of saving you. His way has always been from eternity past all the way to the very end, grace alone, with no mixture of your works, with no law-keeping from you, only the law-keeping of his son. And he gives it to us as a gift. This is an incredible, earth-shattering, life-changing reality, if you can hear it, and I hope that you can. We're all trying to hear it more and more and more. His terms are grace through faith, not merit through performance. You hear that? His terms of saving you, keeping you, loving you, forgiving you, uh, taking you into his kingdom, giving you everlasting joy forevermore is not merit through performance. It is by grace as a gift, simply through faith in his son and what he has done. That is, in a nutshell, the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. Take note. I don't know what your version says. Mine says, take note, and it has a big exclamation mark after it. Take note. I, Paul, am telling you, this is the Christian Standard Bible version. It uses some helpful language. It's very down to earth. Hear this. If you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. 
circumcision being a practice that, that was believed to make you righteous before God, keeping a certain kind of uh, purity law of the Old Testament. So there are some here that are feeling this legalistic pull of their own hearts and perhaps hearing from others around them that if you don't get in line with the law, if you don't get circumcised, if you don't stop eating pork, if you don't, fast forward, if you don't go to church every Sunday, if you don't give enough money to Lottie Moon, if you don't read your Bible enough, if you use those kinds of words, if you watch that kind of television, right? It's all this sense that if we keep up with the law, that is what will make us acceptable to God. He says something incredibly striking. Christ will not benefit you at all. And then he says this part that we have heard already in verse three. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised, that he is obligated to do the entire law. That should have your mind kind of rewinding back to, the, to earlier in Galatians where you heard him say, you who want to live by the law, don't you listen to the law? Don't you know what the expectation is? If, if you think that you are going to impress God, be forgiven by him, have everlasting joy in him, and belong to him because you're a good person, don't you know what it means, in God's view, to be a good person? It is a relentless, infinitely high standard that you cannot and you've already failed to reach. Are you, is it getting clearer why this is such a big deal? If you get yourself circumcised, if you live by hoping in law-keeping to make you a good person or acceptable to God, Christ has nothing to do for you because he has come to do all of the approval for you. He's come to make you acceptable by his law-keeping, by his sacrifice, by his good deeds, by his faithfulness, by his loving God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength, and by loving his neighbor as himself and doing everything else. He will be of no use to you. There's an old kind of like uh, cliche or figure of speech uh, that goes like this. It, it talks about throwing your lot in with someone. Have you heard that before? It's like you would, you would throw in your, your value or your participation in with a group of people, right? Uh, no Ohio State fan would do this, but imagine that you now would throw your lot in with Michigan so that you could be part of a group that's moving forward. I'm not a Michigan fan. Relax. I'm not an Ohio State fan. I'm not, I'm not saying something secretive. But that's what it's like. It's like throwing your lot in with somebody and joining their team. Or we might put it this way, even though we're Baptist. If you play cards and you push all your chips in on that hand, you're putting all of your hope on what cards you're holding. This is what he's talking about. Don't go back and throw your lot in with the law. Because if you do, what does Christ have to do for you? You have, you have decided that you're going to do the work that's needed, that you're going to open the door to God's favor. But that doesn't work that way. You're pushing your chips in on the law. All right, B2. 
be honest, let's just be honest. Why is this a big deal? Because it has everything to do with how you relate to God on a daily basis, and me too. And this is a central struggle for us because every one of us keeps going back to throwing our light in on the law. You keep going back to thinking that that is either the central way that God approves of you, even though you're not hearing the law, or that's your fail-safe. You know what? Just in case Jesus didn't get it all done, I think I'll just make sure by being a really righteous person. That's kind of the logic. And Paul is taking aim at this in an incredible way. For the self-righteous rush, Paul makes two big points. There was that first. If you put your hat in with the law, throw your lot in with the law, you're obligated to keep it all. You better keep it all because that's, that's the route you're, you have decided to take. So in, in this case, some people were looking to circumcision as that self-assuring work. You, you can think of your own. You, you have a list of them. You could just even take some time this week and make, make your list actually on paper, then you would see them. Notice the ways that you do self-assuring work so that you feel good about your, quote, chances of being loved by God. You can make a list of that. This, for them, was something like circumcision and other things. And then in verse 4, there's that other big truth. If you throw your lot in with the law, you're alienating yourself from Christ. And notice what he says in verse 4. You have fallen from grace. Now, that does not mean that if you do this later today, that you lose your salvation, and then you get saved again, and then you lose your salvation. Obviously, that's not true because of the gospel. Jesus is going to keep us. We're in his hands, and the Father's hands are wrapped around his, and no one can snatch us away. Nothing can separate us, be specific about that verse, from the love of God, not just from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nevertheless, what Paul is saying in verse 4 is, you've fallen from grace. You've, you've left. You've left your first love. You've left behind the terms of your actual relationship with God, and that is going to create a lot of turmoil in your life. Actually, it's going to pull you back into the cell of slavery again. You're going to experience the Christian life in those moments or days or weeks or months. You're going to experience the Christian life not as freedom, but as burden. You're going to become a person who is burdened all the time. It's on your face, it's on your life, you're weighed down because I gotta keep the law or else. And Paul knows that this is not true and he's preaching the gospel again and again and again to them. So what this means is for us to obey Paul's teaching here is that our lives will have to become, and they are already, but to continue to be lives of repentance. And the repentance will not simply be stop doing law-breaking, start doing law-keeping. Obviously, that's part of repentance. We are obeying. We are called to obey. We have been freed to obey. That's part of our repentance. But at the center of the Christian life, it means this. There will be an even more important repentance that happens daily. And it is that I repent 
of trusting in the law to save me and keep me and instead trust by faith and by God's grace to keep me as a gift. That's the repentance. So that's an important thing to write down if you're a note taker. Your Christian life needs to become more and more, as does mine, more and more a life of repentance in which you keep coming back to freedom in the gospel rather than living under the burden of the law. So first application this morning, embrace with joy a daily quest for joy and freedom in Christ alone. Instead of finding joy and freedom, so-called joy and freedom, in obedience, law-keeping, being a good Christian, find it instead in Christ-believing, in Christ-loving, in Christ-resting. Find your joy and your freedom in Christ. Because for freedom... Christ set us free. That's the first. Reason number two, faith working through love is what comes from Christ, not performance working for merit. See, we keep trying to say it in two different ways, in in different ways. The law and the gospel draw out this distinction in different ways and words to try to help us. Here's the alternative Paul talks about eagerly wading through the Spirit by faith for the hope of righteousness who is Christ. Hear this in verse 5. He says, for we, he's, he's now taking us to the alternative way of living. It's not the be circumcised, keep the law, uh, do your Christian duty, and that will keep you in the family. He says, for we, instead of living that way, await through the Spirit by faith, the hope of our righteousness. We're awaiting the Holy Spirit's ultimate work because of our faith in Christ alone, not because of our works, the hope of our righteousness, who is Christ. It's awaiting for him to return because he is the very embodiment of our righteousness. He is the one to whom we belong. He is our hope. We aren't. It's not our performance, it's his grace. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Wow. What matters is faith working through love. This is the way that Paul describes a life of faith working through love or faith-saving through affection, our our love for Christ. Here are the two paths. We'll say it another way. One is enslaving and one is freeing. Law-keeping, saving or sustaining us through our obligation of obedience is one way to live. That's what we've been describing in the law. This other way, though, and he's putting new words to it, is faith-believing, saving and sustaining us through the love of grace. You're hearing it in just different ways. We need different words to help us understand exactly what is going on. That's what we see in verse five. Again, these are two paths. They're two ways of relating to God. At any given moment, you and I 
are doing one or the other. We're either resting back on ourselves and the things that we think we have done, or we're resting back on Christ and all that he has done for us. We know that this is true even in daily life. We've used this example a lot because it makes sense to us. You don't have any friendships that work like this either. That's sort of the thing that is mind-boggling to me. Of why, why would I think that that's the way my relationship with God would work? That, that I'd be a good little boy and he would be a loving God? That's not the way that it works in my friendships. I mean, do, do you think that, that it would work to have a friendship with any, even any ordinary human being in which we would, we would have obligation to do something for them, and, and we, we have the, we, well, uh, we're going to go to lunch today and talk about life because we have to. That's the rule. That, that's not a friendship, right? What if I came to lunch and said, all right, look, I got 15 minutes. Let's get this done. What's going on in your marriage, okay? I think we've done enough. <laughs> that you wouldn't, want, you wouldn't want to hang out, right? It doesn't work. Now, exponentially higher is the relationship with God. And yet that's exactly what we do when we come to him by law. Let's get, the, let's get the quiet time done. How fast can I get through these words and just like check it off? Look, good, Whew, got it, done, right? This is a different way of living and Paul is so clear. Just hear his language, one, and then hear his zeal. Still in verse five, um, in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. He says, what matters is faith working through love. That's very clear language. And then he follows it up with this clear zeal to make his point. Look at verse 7. He says what, we heard, what we've heard other places. You were running well. You were running on grace. You were running by faith. Who in the world prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This is the truth. And then he says, the persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. This is not what God has told you. God has never said to you, if you do what I say, then I will give you grace. That's never what he has said. He says, I will give you grace, and it's my grace that will lead you to do the things that I say. It will be me working in you, not you working for me. So Paul is flabbergasted, though he understands, he knows, this happens in his heart too. Who in the world persuaded you against this truth, that this is actually the way things work? He says in verse uh, 8, this persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you, and he warns them, be careful. Ah, here's, here's, here's a good answer to the whole, why is it such a big deal? A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. He's using a good illustration here. If you do a little of this self-righteous thing, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Just put a little pinch of self-justification in there, a little pinch of I'm going to help out with some law-keeping, and that just makes sure things are good. It will not stay there. It will swell and grow into the rest of your life, and your life will be taken over by it. Again, back to the slavery concept. 
A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. He says in verse 10, this is, he's being so hopeful and prayerful, but I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view. You'll come back to the truth again and again and again. But whoever it is, here's the zeal, whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Obviously, these are people who are outside of the covenant. They're outside of the family. They're, they're coming in, causing distraction. These are false teachers. These are troublemakers. They will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Obviously, I'm not. If somebody told you I was saying that you got to keep all the laws in addition to your faith in order to be in the family, obviously, that's not true. Because if I was preaching that, everybody would love me. But I'm being persecuted. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. He's just using a graphic term for circumcision. You're getting a sense of what Paul thinks about this. Tell us what you really think. Tell us what you really feel, Paul. I hope they mutilate themselves because they are causing trouble at the very center of the Christian life and they are persuading you of something that is that is essentially, it is foundationally untrue. And this might be true of you as well. You, when you initially came to faith in Christ, you, you might be able to remember those days. Our memory fades with time, that's okay. But if you can remember that, when your faith was new and it was all of grace and it was all of gratitude and you just, you were so persuaded that there was nothing that you could have done to save yourself. There was no amount of law keeping and you are grateful for Jesus to shine on you and to show you his grace and to take you just as you are, in fact, in spite of who you were and you just rested in his, in his grace. You didn't try to pay him back. You didn't try to earn anything from him. You just received the good gift and it changed your life. But now, now it's not always that way. We're not, now that's not the way that we always think about things. But instead, because of sin, living in our hearts still, it stirred us back up to this old way and we have moved back to the law. Paul's very protective about this. He's very protective of his sheep. And this is central in his mind. Second application this morning then is similar to the first, but a little different. Embrace with joy a life on grace, that your life is built on grace. And do this, here it is, by drinking deeply of the gospel every day. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We have to have the constant sprinkling of the gospel into our hearts all the time or else you will turn around a year from now and there will be leaven everywhere. There will be self-righteous, self-justification everywhere in your life. It will be like the thing, the way you live and you'll be miserable. You will be miserable. Paul is warning against it and he's offering something different. And this is the last reason this morning that we'll see is that in addition to the first two, about this way of life, alienating from us from Christ and, and the true way of the gospel, uh, really uh, 
coming from Christ. It's what Christ does in us, faith working through love. Last is that this freedom that he's talking about, which we should call gospel freedom, that's what Paul has in mind. It actually cultivates the love of Christ in us. Not only love for him, but overflowing love to other people. That makes it a big deal because that means that this is not a personal thing. It's not just like, what's the big deal with long gospel? I mean, doesn't that just affect this little part of my life and isn't it just semantics and, and it doesn't really make a big difference in, in my daily life. It doesn't make any difference in my relationships. Actually, it does. And that's what Paul says. Because it's this that cultivates love. And the opposite, that kind of self-justification will not cultivate love in relationships. It will kill even the relationships that we have. Notice the last few verses, 13 through 15. Paul shows us again what real freedom in Christ will look like. The first part of 13. For you were called to be free. Man, he said it again in a short time later. You were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. There it is. What will this kind of gospel mindset do in your family or in our church or in your neighborhood? It will lead you to serve others through love. This is the reason Jesus came for us, so that we could be free and so that we could enjoy this freedom to his glory and that always works out in love. That's what it looks like. That's why he says this about neighbor love. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. When you come to Christ, it's the reminder that when you come to Christ to rely on the gospel, it's the gospel that comes first. The grace comes first and then works out of us obedience. Therefore, our obedience is not transactional. It's not a payment. It's not cash. You know, I'm not paying God cash of my obedience. He gives me back, right? That's, it's, it's the opposite. Actually, he delivers to us the resources that we need. And then out of us comes this obedience that works out in gratitude. And that's why he says the whole law, once you see this, you will, you will give yourself to law keeping in a whole new way, not a burdensome way, not an enslaving way, not in a self-justifying way, but rather in a loving way, you will love your neighbor as yourself. It's really counterintuitive, isn't it? I read recently, this was really interesting. Did you know that hot water freezes faster than cold water? Did you know that? Everybody's looking at me with blank stares. That's what I did. I didn't know that. That's not, that's not what I would think. That's not, it's a reminder to me that the things aren't always as they seem to be. Some wild things happen that I didn't expect. This is another one in a spiritual sense. I would not expect that the freedom of Christ would lead me to greater love, greater dependence on others, greater interaction with other people. I would think that maybe it would lead me out into independence, isn't that what freedom is? Freedom is getting to do what you want, right? It's getting to do anything that you want. And being an independent person, not in Christ. It's something even better than that. It's freedom to love. In other words, apart from Christ, we're not free to love because our hearts are enslaved and his freedom 
opens the door for us. This is an amazing truth. And Paul, again, gives this this simultaneous warning and promise. As we come to a close, look at verse 15. He warns them because he sees the effect of the self-justifying legalism of, of the church in certain places. And he sees the effect as this, biting and devouring one another. That's what happens when you're a self-justifier because you become a judge. You become the judge of everyone else because you think, I've kept the law. Why are you keeping the law? And since I keep the law, I'm going to tell you how you're not keeping the law. And then you bite and devour because everybody's doing that, right? You got a bunch of self-righteous, self-justifying people in a room, and what do they do? They don't love each other. They condemn each other. They judge each other. They criticize each other. That's what happens. But here's the beauty. If we get our hearts and minds around the gospel more and more, the freedom that we have in Christ, and if we would live in light of grace, not law, before God, we'll do it before each other, and our relationships will blossom. Because when you fail to keep the law, your friends won't condemn you. They will love you. They will uphold you. They will lovingly guide you, and you will do the same to them. And they won't do it as judges. They do it as friends. They do it as neighbors. And there's the warning. If you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you'll be consumed by each other. So this has something to do with everything in the Christian life. It, has, it is central to your Christian life and mine when we're alone. It's central to our, our relationship to God himself. And it is central to our relationship with each other. And that, my friends, that's at least three reasons why this is a big deal. And if you think it's semantics, and if you think it's silly, and you think it's straining at gnats, you don't get it. But I want you to get it. I want to get it. I need to get it. So let's pray. Please stand with me so that we can pray before we sing again and ask God to do this, and that perhaps even as we sing songs that are going to reinforce these truths, that they'll take root in our hearts. It could be that you're here today and you're not a Christian. I always know that. And I'm glad that you're here if that's you. And I want you to know this. I want you to know that there is no hope for you apart from Jesus. You cannot good work your way into his favor. You cannot impress him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is not impressed by you or me. But by faith, by grace, as a gift, he's offered himself to you by giving his son to live, die, and rise again. That's what he did and we celebrated Christmas. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, that you would take what I'm saying of utmost seriousness because you cannot live long without him. And he delights to delight you as he's delighting us. And I hope that you will know that too. The way that you can know that is, 
as he's working in your heart to repent of your sin and to place your trust in him, to befriend him, to become friends with Jesus, and to become a follower of his. And if that happens in your heart, it'd be an incredible miracle that only God could do. And if you find that that miracle has happened, you need to tell us about it. Because we want to rejoice with you, pray with you, help you, walk with you. We want to be neighbors to you. We want to be friends. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks again this morning because the gospel is clear in your word. It's not always clear in our hearts. Sometimes we go back and we find ourselves living that old legalistic way, that old self-justifying, self-righteous little kingdom of self way. And so we pray, we pray that you would continue to do your good work because we know it's not finished. We pray that you would help us to to take seriously this important distinction between your law and your gospel in our lives. We pray that we would see more and more the order corrected, that we would look to the gospel first and obey because of you, not look to the law and obey so that we might impress you. We pray that you would work in us so that we would become more joyful, more free, more happy, more at peace, more calm, more trusting, more neighborly, all because of the good news of Jesus. We know that is your aim, that's your goal, and that is the work that you will finish. And so we give you thanks today in Jesus' name for that. Ahead of time, amen. Amen.